God truly raises up nations, and He pulls down nations. Let us be thankful for the mercy He has given us in making this the nation that it has, but let us not presume upon His mercies. He has the same prerogatives of pulling this nation down as He does any other nation. And let us also remember that there is really only one holy nation in today's uh, time of the Messianic Kingdom, and that's the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only nation that Christ recognizes or God recognizes as where His people is identified and located at. Well, we come today to message number five in the series on the mystery of human suffering. And we're entitling today's message, The Causes of Suffering. And I'm going to be reading two passages of Scripture from Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. I turned it on or not. Get my PA system going here. Reading from Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, and from the New Testament, Luke chapter 13, 1 through 5. I ask you to turn to the latter part, especially, as we'll be looking at that in more detail today. The causes of suffering. Unto Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return to the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, unto dust thou shalt return. Now a passage, a unique passage, found in the 13th chapter of Luke and verses 1 through 5 that has a real bearing upon how we interpret human suffering. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell, and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. I'm going to be dividing this topic into two messages rather than in one to try to give more time to some of the details involved. We've now completed in the previous four messages the outside framework of our puzzle. If you will look at the board before you on my left. It is only as we stay within this biblical framework that the individual causes and purposes of suffering will maintain their harmony of meaning. If one or more of these four sides is omitted from the puzzle, we will no longer retain the symmetrical and biblical balance. That is, if you pull one or two sides out and pushed on it, it's going to collapse and you're not going to give, be given a perfect harmonious square. And this individuals try to do by pulling out different aspects of these four sides. We've called these four sides, number one, the creature's sin. That must be maintained that all suffering finds its origin in the sin of the creature. Number two, we call the second side God's character, that although God hates and despises sin, he's still in control of sin. He's a sovereign God, and he's not diminished his creation or given up on his creation and lost control. The third side, we look at the topic of God's just wrath upon the exceeding sinfulness of sin, 
And there we learned that unless we see how sinful sin really is, we will view our suffering as if we are victims rather than those who justly deserve what suffering is meted out in our way. And then the fourth frame, side of the frame, we looked at in our last message, and that is God's solution for sin and suffering and His redemptive remedy. The mystery of mystery of all things, God chooses to solve and remove suffering through becoming incarnate as a man and suffering himself, as well as ordaining the suffering of his people who are in union with Christ to where it will work for our good rather than for our destruction. Now we are ready to start looking at the individual understandings that the Bible gives us for miscellaneous causes of suffering. We're ready now to begin to place together some of the inside pieces of our puzzle, and we'll call these individual causes of suffering. We'll limit them to six in number because I just can't get any more in the puzzle up here, although the Bible does give more than six. And as these causes are revealed, it will become evident why conflicting explanations are sometimes given by people when they try to explain a specific incident of suffering. The answers to human suffering from the Bible are multiple and complex. It is when simple answers are attempted to be given that confusion is introduced into the picture. I'm sure you've all heard of the proverbial story of the blind men trying to describe what the elephant looked like. How many of you have heard the story? Several. How many of you have not heard the story? How many of you don't have hands? <laughs> the proverbial story is that several blind men were taken up and allowed to place their hands on an elephant and then describe what they thought the elephant was like. And one grabbed a hold of its ear and said, well, it's large and flat and flexible. Another one got a hold of its trunk and said, no, it's long and slick and very hard. Another one got a hold of its tail and said, no, it's real short and rough and so forth. And they all described different parts of the elephant when in reality they were all wrong because they could not see the totality of what the elephant looked like. And we make mistakes as Christians by picking out of the Bible one cause for suffering and then making that the universal answer and particularly going to a person who is suffering and saying, this is the reason why you're suffering. And there we make mistakes. And we'll see that as this begins to unfold in the individual pieces this morning. The first reason within the puzzle for human suffering, we've already touched on, but we're going to call it our Adamic sin. Suffering and death is caused by God's judicial sentence upon Adam's sinful race. We read this in Genesis chapter 3, where the curse was placed upon Adam, and he is going to have to live a life acquainted with sorrow, suffering, ending in death. And that has been transmitted on to all of his offspring, so that all of us are living in a world in which we're going to be exposed to suffering because of our Adamic sinful nature. We've already established this in the previous lesson so we'll not enlarge upon it. But lest that some in the Christian community would try to divorce suffering from God's control, we need to hear again the word of the Lord in Deuteronomy 32:29. Quote, God says, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive, I wound, and I heal, neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. End of quote. God takes responsibility 
for all the suffering that exists in human existence. Because death is the penalty for sin. The wages of sin is what? It is death. Romans chapter 3, 6 and verse 23. And that requires suffering. In Luke chapter 13 now, if you have that open in your Bibles, and verses 1 through 5, Jesus was asked for his views about the horrible deaths that a group of religious people suffered at the hands of a brutal governmental official named Pilate. These Jews were slaughtered, evidently, in the midst of a religious ceremony and had their own blood mixed with the animal sacrifices. That is a horrible way to die. A humbling way. A debasing way. And so these people, some of Jesus' followers, said, Master, what do you think about this? How do you explain this? And in his reply, Jesus enlarged the discussion by referring to the 18 people who in that time period were killed in a natural disaster when a tower fell upon them. Some Bible historians believe it was a water tower in this particular town that collapsed and crushed these to death. It was widely believed in that time period that the degree in which a person suffered or died was an indicator of how great they were sinning against God. Get it? If you died a horrible death, you must have been punished for being a horrible sinner. So the worst manner in which that you died was an indicator of how great a sinner that you were. That was widely believed in the time of Christ. And Jesus said that they, his inquirers, had missed the meaning of the message which God would have them learn from these two tragedies. The reply of Jesus is remarkably applicable to the survivors of any tragedy. Think of some tragedy that you've been acquainted with today. And Jesus' reply to that tragedy that you're thinking about is applicable very much so today as much as it was in the words that he spoke to these followers or these who were questioning him. At least three lessons on suffering can be taught from the response of Jesus. First, now get your thinking caps on. I'm going to word these very precise, but sometimes the sentence structure may turn out to where I think it communicates, and it may be communicate the opposite to you. I'll read slowly, speak slowly here. Those who suffer horrible deaths do so because they are deserving of their fate. I would not say that had we not already filled in the four sides of the framework. No matter how horrible a death anyone dies, they are worthy of that death. Makes you kind of go. They are not innocent victims of God's providence. The fact that Jesus could tell his hearers that unless they repent, the ones who are alive, they too will perish, reveals that Jesus believed, you know with me, that all death in one way or another is the result of sin and thus deserved. 
If he did not believe that, he would have answered differently. Jesus did not try to remove God from the outcome of these two horrible tragedies. That same thing is true today. Jesus hasn't changed his belief if however anybody dies, whether one dies in their sleep or they're ground up in a hamburger machine, or they die like 911-111, the horrible deaths where you don't even find your body. All who die are worthy of death. That was Jesus' belief. The second lesson that we learn from Jesus' statement here, those who suffer horrible deaths are not morally inferior to others who escape such fates. I'm going to say that again. Those who suffer horrible deaths are not morally inferior to those who escape such fates. Jesus' assumption is that while some suffer horrible deaths, others who do not deserve no less. Except you repent, he says. You shall all likewise perish. So those who were murdered and had their throats cut and their blood mixed with the animal sacrifices... And those on whom the tower crushed. Listen, my hearers, that could have been you and me. We deserve no less. Because we do not really grasp what is the exceeding sinfulness of sin. We have too high a view of ourselves in thinking, well, I shouldn't have gotten that. I shouldn't have this coming to me. After all, I'm respectable. I can see this might happen to a great sinner out here. Someone who's robbed and raped and murdered. I could see that, but not me. Jesus didn't see it that way. He said, all of you could have had this happen to you. And God wouldn't have had to apologize to anybody. Things get awful quiet when truth begins to pinch and gets close home to us. Because all of us are thinking right now of individuals that we know and have known that died a very horrible death, whether it's lingering cancer or whatever it was. And we just can't make ourselves believe that those individuals were really worthy of such a form of suffering. Jesus' message focused not on the ones who died, but on the ones who were left alive. Get it? The ones who have been left alive are to realize it is only the mercy of God which has kept them alive. And if they are unsaved, they need to repent while they still have the chance. Get it? You and I are alive today because of the mercy of God. That's it. The third lesson we can learn from this teaching of Jesus, those who escape horrible sufferings and death should view these incidents as wake-up calls from God to repent. If you are here today and you have never trusted Christ, you've never acknowledged your sinfulness, when you see a tragedy, it ought to be a wake-up call sent from God for you to repent while you still have the opportunity to do so. And if they do not, they can only face the greatest tragedy of all, 
that being the righteous judgment of God inflicting eternal torment upon the bodies and souls of human beings. Listen, folks, I don't care how awful a human body may perish in whatever manner, nothing can compare with the eternal torment of the eternal wrath and justice of God Almighty. In Matthew 10:28, Jesus stated, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That is sober. That's the words of our loving Master. Fear Him who's able to destroy both soul and body in eternal torment. Now the second individual cause that the Bible gives for human suffering is, you look at your board, our personal sins may cause it. I say may. For as we'll get through all of this, we're going to see that there are some circumstances in which we suffer that it's not due to our personal sins. Job's case will be referred to. Suffering and death may be caused by a specific personal sin on our part. Now, this is a new piece of information which we have not considered up to this point. While we are all sinners who will eventually die, in some cases, God executes a judicial sentence immediately upon a specific sin which is committed. Several notable examples are recorded in Scripture, one of which was David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba. This is recorded in chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel. Because of the length of the passage, I have decided not to go there and read it. I'm going to have to try to rehearse the passage there and hope that most of my hearers have some acquaintance with it. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. This relationship resulted in Bathsheba bearing a son. God sent Nathan the prophet to confront David with his sin. David repented, and the Lord forgave him, but told him that his young son would suffer and die. Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, we read, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also hath put away your sin, and you shall not die. It's an amazing thing how upon confession there's immediate forgiveness. Howbeit, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child that is born unto you shall surely die. The child lives seven days and dies. Now, here is a clear case in which a specific sin is punished in a specific manner. No question about it. The fact that the innocent child suffered because of its father's sin will be dealt with later. There are other examples in the Bible of God bringing immediate judgment upon a specific sin. You remember Elisha had a servant named Gehazi? 
And Elisha had been used of God to heal Naaman of leprosy. Naaman was the captain of the Syrian army, was well off financially. He offered to compensate Elisha for the healing he had received. But Elisha refused to take any compensation. Not like the modern day healers, incidentally. Gehazi, the servant, overheard this. And after the departure of the way of Elisha leaving the scene, Gehazi approaches privately Naaman about a financial need that existed in the lives of two young men training for the ministry. In doing so, he lied. He was intending to keep whatever Naaman had given to him for himself. But he said, I've got these two young creature boys that could really use some help. After Naaman rewarded Gehazi, Elisha found out about it. And he then immediately placed a curse of leprosy upon Gehazi and his children. And this is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 27. Another example of a specific sin being punished in a specific manner. We have examples of this in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 5 and verses 1 through 11, we have the account of a couple, a married couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And they lied about a charitable gift that they had given to the church. And in the midst of the assembled congregation, they were both smitten by God and died on the spot. What if God did that every time you lied and went to church? Right on the spot, in the middle of the church service, assembled, two church members are smitten. And great fear comes upon the whole church and the community. A specific sin is punished by a specific punishment. In Acts chapter 12, verses 19 through 23, a man named Herod gave a very powerful speech which so impressed the audience that they ascribed it to have come from a divine supernatural source. What was God's response? In verse 23 we read, Immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he had not given God the glory he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. A specific sin of taking pride for one's oratorical skills and not giving the credit to God results in punishment immediately by God. You see what we are saying? Sometimes our sufferings are brought on by specific acts of personal sinning. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 32, several members of the Corinthian church were killed by God for partaking of the Lord's Supper while causing strife and division in the church. I hope this doesn't cause too many to pass the supper by today after the message is over. But if you're in that category, you better, or you better confess your sin before you partake. For this cause, many sleep and are sickly, is what is recorded of the Corinthian church. All of these examples teach us that a specific type of suffering 
may be directly caused by a specific personal sin. But if this was the only explanation given in the Bible for suffering, then one could see easily Why does it record the sins of David, Gehazi, Ananias and Sapphira, Herod, and the church members at Corinth? It records us, those, not to have us believe that these sins were so outstanding that they deserved immediate punishment. Why? How can we reach that conclusion? After all, reality shows us that multitudes have committed adultery and born children out of wedlock and are not or were not immediately judged. Many have deceived others in business dealings and have not been judged immediately. Many have lied in the presence of church members and have not been killed on the spot. Many Christians regularly abuse the Lord's Supper and are not stricken with sickness and death. Then what are we to conclude from these examples? These examples, now listen, show us that while all personal acts of sin are deserving of immediate judgment, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are all not instantly punished whenever we sin. Get it? So all of these examples, these people were not greater sinners and therefore they deserved immediate punishment, but it is to remind us that if we were punished for all our specific sins immediately, then every time that we sin, there would be immediate punishment. In fact, if you think about it, if God punished us every time that we sinned or when we sinned, the whole world would eventually or instantly become a huge cemetery. And none would be left alive to propagate a future generation of human beings. That's what would happen if he'd have got rid of Adam and Eve there at the start of all of this. If for reasons of his own choosing, God chooses to execute the sentence of sin immediately, he is not unjust in doing so. His immediate judgment on the angels that fell confirmed this as an example. And from this viewpoint, then, we cannot be certain, listen, that God will not bring about suffering and death in our lives the very next time we commit a specific act. Don't you presume upon the mercy of God. Now, the third cause that's given in Scripture are the Adamic sin, number one, are personal sins. But the Bible goes further than that. It gives us another cause as to why we suffer. And that is suffering and death may be caused by a specific sin on the part of another, be it of human or angelic origin. By this, we mean that one person's sins may bring about suffering in the life of another person. A man takes a gun, shoots another person 
The shooter commits the sin and the victim suffers. There's a bank robbery and the robbers are fleeing the bank and they're shooting at the police and one of the bullets hits an innocent bystander. And the bystander suffers because of the actions of another. Now again, the Bible is filled with examples of this principle. David's little infant son suffers because of David's sin. Get it? Second Samuel twelve eighteen. Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, dies in battle because of David's sin. Second Samuel eleven, fourteen through seventeen. The whole nation of Israel suffers humility because of David's sin. Second Samuel twelve fourteen. Job suffers because of the sins of others, namely Satan, angelic origin. Job suffered because of the sins of his wife, who said, why don't you just curse God and die? I'm sure that relieved Job. No, that only added to his misery. And then his best friends come in Job chapter 2 and verse 3. And they just heap on wave after wave after wave of added suffering. So Job's suffering is increasing here from angelic, marital, and human companionship origins. In times of war, many innocent victims suffer. It cannot be otherwise. When the bomb goes off, it just doesn't hit the bad guys. In the 21st chapter of Ezekiel, God announces that He's about to bring forth judgment upon the city of Jerusalem for the sins of its leaders, the princes, the prophets, and the priests have all forsaken the ways of God. And the form of punishment would come in the form of an invading army which would wound and kill in an indiscriminate fashion. In Ezekiel 21.3, God says, Say to the land of Israel, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am against thee, and will draw forth my sword out of its sheath, and will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. End of quote. The primary usage of the expressions righteous and wicked mean the innocent and the guilty as they related to the external civil laws of God given to Israel. That is, some innocent people are going to suffer for the sins of the leaders of Israel because when this army comes in with all of its soldiers, it's not just going to pick out the prophets, the princes, and the priests. It's going to pick out the women and the children and the elderly right along with it. And they're all going to suffer. So here we have the innocent suffering for the actions of others. Now, in one sense, no one is righteous or innocent. Romans 3.10. But this is not what Ezekiel means here. He rather means that when the devastation of the war begins, the people who will suffer will include those whose immediate personal sins brought the city under its judgment, and those who have not participated in those sins which brought on the judgment of God 
will likewise suffer. Wars, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, plagues, and other afflictions are not very discriminating. Therefore, if we attribute all the suffering which occurs in these events as God's punishment for specific personal sins, then we will become confused when we see the innocent suffering along with the guilty. This happened about a year ago in our country. In the year 2005, the Hurricane Katrina hit the city of New Orleans in the United States. And the prophets of God had a heyday. Let me tell you why God did this. Since the city had a great reputation of a sin-loving city, many Christian leaders announced that the event was the direct judgment of God on the city because of its sins. Now, were there sinners in the city? Were there sinners there who deserved to be punished for sin? Were there sinners there in which God could have been punishing individuals for specific sins? Were there individuals there that were going to suffer for the sins of others? All of these things are possible. But for a spokesman to say, I represent God, now I'm telling you why God sent the hurricane to hit New Orleans, is to go beyond the propriety of Scripture. In fact, there were spokesmen on national TV who did not believe that God was a God of judgment. And they said that God didn't control the hurricane. You heard that. But they also pointed out how that Christians, Christian churches, and other people suffered as well as those who participated in the sins for which the city was famous. I understand there was a large party of several hundred people that the night in which the, the, the hurricane was to hit, a large group of sexual perverts, homosexuals and lesbians were having a convention in the city when it hit. So, Christian spokesmen said it was because they were there Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the reason why God sent the hurricane. Strange why then He spared the most sinful part of the city. Bourbon Street, right down through there, was spared where the worst sin was committed. And that innocent people and children suffered and died in the midst of it. Many things must be taken into consideration when a person tries to interpret disasters like this. Remember Jesus? Master, were these greater sinners than the others? Time will only permit a few examples of lessons that we can learn. I'll say this in conclusion now. What can we learn from the hurricane that hit New Orleans? First, no one can affirm the exact reason why God controlled the hurricane to hit where it did. Anybody want to stand and give us a revelation from God? 
don't have any takers. No one can specify the exact reason why God controlled the hurricane to hit there. Secondly, if it was for the punishment of the guilty, then innocent people suffered for the sins of others. Did it? And thirdly, the innocent, quote, unquote, who suffered did so because they were living in a fallen world exposed to suffering, and they themselves were not sinless. Even infants die who have never committed a personal transgression of the law. So here are three individual causes in the Bible out of others to come as to why we suffer. We suffer because of our Adamic nature. All under a curse. We suffer for our own personal sins and we bring things on ourselves. And it's the mercy of God that we're not suffering more. And then thirdly, we may suffer because of what somebody else does and brings suffering upon us. May God help us then this day in this great country in which we live to be appreciative of the mercies that we have. As many problems as the United States has, and I'm one of the greatest critics, all it takes is to travel to another country and come back and see what a country we have to live in. What a privilege we have. What mercies we have. I close with this verse. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Let's pray. Father, as we've waded through a portion of Your Word and found some more reasons as to why we suffer, oh, we marvel at Your mercy and long-suffering, that attribute that You are characterized by. Through your long suffering, your patience in dealing with sinful creatures before judgment comes, and yet ever so often you send us a wake-up call to remind us that all of us are worthy of your wrath. We thank you for the solution that you have provided in the person of your Son, who on behalf of his people of all those whom you chose in Christ and all of those who would manifest that election by repenting and believing and embracing Christ as their Lord and Savior, all of those you have borne the wrath that we deserve so that we are now set free and we have a freedom from the condemnation of your just sentence of death and suffering that you now take our own personal suffering and use that to conform us to the fellowship of Christ's sufferings and make us appreciative of what He did on our behalf. If any is here today and they're not yet a believer, oh God, I pray that this message, that you might speak to them and show them that today is the day of salvation. Harden not their hearts. Oh, may they turn to you this day. And may you be just in pardoning them of sin. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.